Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. I was surfing the web the other day and I came across this article about Dr. Gordon Gallup a biopsychologist from the University of Albany who argues that humans are dangerous, violent, and ceaselessly engage in endless bloody conflicts and war. And that's why aliens don't want to come here. After I looked at the article, I reached out to him and he kindly accepted. And here we are. Dr. Gallup, thank you so much for being my guest today and welcome. My pleasure, Jeff. All right. I believe the Daily Mail sourced this information from an open access paper that you published in the Journal of Astrobiology. Can you tell us about that paper you published first? Well, we were invited by the Journal of Astrobiology. When I say we, myself and a former student uh, whose name is Hesper Falaveno, we were invited by the Journal of Astrobiology to publish uh, a paper in a special edition of the Journal of Astrobiology, uh, and it's and the special edition is called "The Evolution of Life and Consciousness in Other Solar Systems." Mm. And because I've done some work on on consciousness, uh, they sent me an invitation, and I found it uh, very intriguing and. Uh, Myself and this former student and I uh, decided to uh, look at um, extraterrestrial life from a evolutionary cognitive perspective. And I'm an evolutionary psychologist. I I, I don't <clears throat> I look at the impact of evolution on human behavior, but more specifically, the impact of evolution on human thinking and how we uh, perceive the world and so on and so forth. So if, if it's all right with you, let me just talk a little bit to, at the beginning to talk a little bit about evolution. I'm going to ask you this either now or later. Should we get your definition of consciousness before we start, or we can tackle that later? Well, I mean, I can I can give you my definition of consciousness, and then we'll come back to it later. How about that? Sounds great. Um, I would define consciousness or, or the capacity to be conscious as the capacity to become the object of your own attention. So you're, people can be aware of things going on in the world around them, and that's one form of consciousness, but they can also 
become aware of themselves and begin to think about themselves in relationship to past and present and future events. And it's this capacity to begin to think about yourself and be, to become the object of your own attention that uh, is is that defines my focus in terms of uh, in terms of consciousness. Um, okay. And one way to think about consciousness and self awareness. One of the problems with consciousness and self awareness is that. They seem to be uh, very philosophical and have little or no um, solid scientific anchor points. And if you define self-awareness as the ability to become the object of your own attention, what better way to begin to investigate self-awareness than to confront an organism with its own reflection in a mirror. In front of a mirror, whether you realize it or not, you have literally become the object of your own attention. And it turns out that the vast majority of animals... Uh, visually capable animals, when confronted with themselves in mirrors, act as though they were seeing another animal and begin to engage in uh, social behavior with the reflection. Is it true that humans are the only one to understand that the other person in the mirror is themselves or are other animals capable of that? Close. To date, there are only three species that show compelling, reproducible, experimental evidence for mirror self-recognition. And those three species involve <clears throat> chimpanzees, orangutans, and humans. Hmm. And I invented a technique for demonstrating whether animals can recognize themselves in mirrors. What I did in the case of the initial work, which involved some, some chimpanzees, was I put chimpanzees in individual cages in in, in different rooms and positioned in front of this cage, they were all by themselves in different rooms, positioned a full-length mirror in front of the cage. And I would then monitor their behavior from behind a partition so that I could observe and record what they did. And initially, when the chimpanzees saw themselves in the mirror, they acted as though they were seeing another chimpanzee and began uh, 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 threatening the image or, or hooting and hollering at the image and in general treating the image as though they would uh, another chimpanzee. But after about 
two or three days, rather than respond to the mirror as such, they began to use the mirror to respond to themselves. That is, they began to use the mirror to investigate parts of themselves that they hadn't seen before. They'd open their mouths and look at their tongues and make faces at the mirror, use the mirror to uh, extract mucus from the corner of the eye, Using they'd use the mirror to, to investigate uh, their anal genital areas. So they underwent what appeared to be a rather dramatic change so that rather than using the mirror as though it were a companion, they used, they began to use the mirror to show patterns of what I called self-directed behavior. And I was pretty much convinced based on what I'd seen that the chimpanzees had in fact learned to recognize themselves in mirrors. But I was concerned that some of my colleagues uh, would be less than enamored with my subjective impressions. So I developed a more rigorous, unobtrusive test of mirror self-recognition. After the animals had been in front of the mirror for 10 days, they were individually uh, removed, where they were anesthetized and removed from the cage. And after they were unconscious, I proceeded to take a bright red, odorless, non-irritating dye and apply a mark to the top half of an eyebrow ridge on one side of the face and the top half of the opposite ear on the other side of the face. And then <clears throat> after their animals had recovered from uh, anesthesia, in the absence of the mirror, they were... Uh, given water and food, and once they were back to normal, the mirror was then brought back into the room. And initially, when they saw themselves in the mirror with these strange red marks on their faces, they'd reach up and touch and attempt to investigate these red marks on their faces. And, and sometimes would even after touching the mark on their face, look directly at their finger that had touched that mark and sniff their finger to try to uh, ostensibly get more information about these strange red marks. Now, there, there are three special properties to this procedure. First, <clears throat> the marks were applied under deep anesthesia, so the chimpanzees would have no information about the presence of these marks. Second, the dye was carefully chosen so that once applied to the face and once it had dried, there were no telltale, tactile, or olfactory cues. And thirdly, the marks were strategically placed at predetermined points on the chimpanzee's face where they wouldn't be able to see those marks. And 
that's what has come to be known as the mark test mm. of mirror self-recognition mm. and literally hundreds of different species have been tested for mirror self-recognition and to date there are only three as I indicated, that have shown convincing, compelling, reproducible experimental evidence for being able to recognize themselves in mirrors, mm. which seems very peculiar in a way. Right. right. I was I was I was very surprised when I did this original study with chimpanzees. I also took some uh, some uh, rhesus monkeys. And some pigtail macaques. A lot of people think, by the way, that all primates are monkeys, and that's not true. <laughs> Chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, and humans are all great apes. They all share a now extinct uh, ancestor in common. Although most people don't think of humans as great apes, human, the, all four species, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, and humans, evolve from a common ancestor mm. um and that that, that the, the evidence for that is not only based on fossil evidence but it's based on biochemical evidence and and so on and so forth um so it appeared to me that humans and other great apes with the possible exception of gorillas which we can perhaps talk about later uh may have entered a unique cognitive domain. All right. You know what? And it occurred to me in thinking about this that, that well, the monkeys, the monkeys, I should add, uh, failed to show any evidence for mirror self-recognition. Um they continued to treat the image in the mirror as though it were another monkey. And after they'd been anesthetized and marked on facial features that they couldn't otherwise see, none of the monkeys located those marks on their faces. I think I sidetracked you way too far. We got way out of far from your basic definition of consciousness. Well, I'll, I'll get back to it here pretty soon. Hmm. So I'm thinking about this capacity for mirror self-recognition, it occurred to me that an organism that is aware of its own existence, and, 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 I, and I think mirror self-recognition su suggests that organisms have self-awareness, and an organism that is self-aware is in a unique position of being able to use its experience to make inferences about comparable experiences in others. While it's true that no two people ever have exactly the same experience, because you and I are both members of the same species, we share similar sensory organs in common, and we share similar brain mechanisms in common. So while it may be true that no two people have exactly the same experience, there's bound to be considerable overlap between your experience and my experience. So I can begin to use my experience to make inferences about your experience. 
And given the relationship between my experience and and my my own mental states, I can begin to use my experience not only to infer your experience, but I can begin to use my experience to make inferences about what you know, what you want, or what you may intend to do. Mm, yeah. Uh, and thus the emergence of self-awareness and consciousness and, uh, and uh, things like mental state attribution. Let me give you an example, some examples of mental state attribution. Uh, you, hear, you might hear someone say, the dog loves its master or the baby monkey is sad and lonely in order to in order to make those inferences you have to use your experience with love and your experience with sadness and loneliness in order to in, in order to infer that uh the dog loves its master baby or the baby monkey is sad and lonely. <clears throat> and let me let me let me begin to probe that a little bit. Um, imagine that you have a dog, and your dog, after running through the woods, returns home after an encounter with a porcupine and it comes home and you discover that its snout and its face is perforated with porcupine quills and with a concern for your dog's well-being you have no choice but to take steps to remove those quills because if you don't the situation will just get worse because they'll They'll, they'll work their way deeper and deeper into the dog's flesh. And you've got, you basically have two options. You could either take the dog to a veterinarian and let the veterinarian do it, or you could get a pair of pliers and attempt to do it yourself. If you were to opt for the latter, As you pull those quills, as you remove the quills from the dog's nose and the dog's face, it would be virtually impossible not to empathize with what you assume to be going on inside the dog's head. That is, you would use your experience with painful experiences to infer the dog's ostensible experience. It's not necessary that you would have ever been quilled, but only that you could generalize from your own painful experiences to what you assume to be going on inside the dog's head. <clears throat> it turns out, however, that any veterinarian can tell you that dogs are oblivious to pain and suffering in other dogs. Hmm. Interesting. Which suggests to me that dogs 
and humans experience pain in pretty much the same way. But dogs and humans part company when it comes to being able to infer painful experiences in other creatures. So, so humans, humans <clears throat> have now entered this unique intellectual consciousness domain. Hmm. And, and if, and, and to set the stage for a lot of the other things that I'd like to talk about, let me just spend a, a couple minutes talking about evolution. Most people think they understand evolution, but evolution is a lot like sex. Most people think they understand it, but they don't really understand. Most people have been taught to think about evolution as being based on the survival of the fittest. And it turns out that evolution has nothing to do with survival and has nothing to do with common sense notions of fit fitness. Nobody survives. Death is an inevitable consequence of life. And common sense notions of fitness, such as strength and intelligence and disease resistance and vitality have nothing to do with evolution. Evolution is based on competition for genetic representation in subsequent generations. It's not a question of whether you live or die. It's a question of whether your genes find their way into subsequent generations. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? From an evolutionary perspective, the egg did. A chicken is nothing but a transient pro protoplasmic superstructure that evolved to enable genes to be transmitted from one generation to the next. And a famous evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, has speculated that intelligent life on a planet doesn't come of age until it works out the reasons for its own existence. And it turns out that humans are the only creatures on planet Earth that have managed to grapple with that question in such a way that led to the 
development of the theory of evolution. So that's one way to attempt to identify intelligent life on planet Earth. The other way to identify intelligent life on planet Earth is to assess an organism's capacity to become self-aware and uh, to begin to think about itself and make inferences about what other people know, want, or intend to do to engage in in things like sympathy and empathy and uh, uh, disappointment and uh, even engage in, uh, in deception. We are the only creatures on planet Earth where what you know can be fatal. as evidenced by the phrase, I could tell you, but then I would have to kill you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are no other species on planet Earth that have reached that level of cognitive self-awareness. So it's, it's, it's no longer a question of, of what you do, it becomes a question of what you know. And there are, there, are, there are three cognitive, well, there are three, there, there, no, I shouldn't say cognitive. There, there are three implications of self-awareness and, and, and what I call social intelligence, which is the ability to make inferences about what others know, want, or intend to do. <clears throat> it used to be the case in the history of psychology that species differences were thought to be a matter of degree, not kind. So although chimpanzees could solve uh, problems faster than rhesus monkeys, for example. If rhesus monkeys were given enough time, they could reach the same level of performance. And there was, there was some evidence in support of that proposition. So when it comes to social intelligence, when it comes to self-awareness, when it comes to mirror self-recognition, the question arises, how much additional time would constitute a fair test of the rhesus monkey's capacity to recognize itself in the mirror. And we, not the student that I mentioned earlier, but an earlier student and I were able to obtain uh, a pair of rhesus monkey infants who, were, who we hand reared who this former student and I hand reared in the lab and they were reared together uh, in a cage and positioned in front of that cage was a mirror, a full length mirror. 
And the question becomes one of, well, how, what, how long would the monkeys have to be in front of the mirror in order for that to constitute a fair test of their ability to show mirror self-recognition? Would a week be enough? Would a month be enough? Would a year be enough? Even a lifetime is not enough. Those monkeys never showed even the faintest evidence for mirror self-recognition. They were tested repeatedly. Yet, if we would enter the room where they were in a, in a cage together, quietly, and they couldn't hear us, as soon as they caught sight of our image in the mirror, they would immediately turn around and confront us directly. So they could, they could appreciate the dualism in mirrors when it came to other organisms like human caretakers, but they were at a complete loss to be able to identify who it was they were seeing when they saw themselves in a mirror. Give you a dramatic example of just how profound that inability was. After they'd been in front of the mirror for many, many years, we happened one day to move the mirror from one side of the cage to the other. And as soon as they saw themselves in the mirror on the other side of the cage, they immediately began to vocalize and threaten their image in the mirror. It was as if they were seeing two monkeys they'd never seen before. So, my conclusion is that many animals have clever brains in the sense of learning and problem solving, but blank minds because they can't conceive of themselves and they're incapable of making inferences about what other, other organisms know, want, or intend to do. That has philosophical implications. The famous quote from Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, if I'm, if I'm right, would have to be rewritten to read, I am, therefore I think. It's, a, it's your ability to conceive of yourself in the first place that makes thinking possible. And that also has, if I can use this, I'll hold this up and you can tell me whether you can see it. Can uh, you see that? It looks like rabbits behind a tree looking at a person walking. Okay, that's a Gary, that's a Gary Larson cartoon. Or is that aliens? And it depicts a human walking down a path 
and there are two aliens hiding behind a tree. And they've positioned a mirror by the path. And one turns to the other and says, now we'll see if it attacks its own reflection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that brings me back to the paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. Now, one of the things that in writing this paper about <clears throat> uh, extraterrestrial intelligence from a cognitive evolutionary perspective, one of the things that uh, we became interested in was <clears throat> what's the probability of finding life elsewhere in the universe? That's one question. Another question would be, what's the probability of finding intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? To date, there is no hard empirical reproducible evidence for life anywhere in the universe. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But since there's no definitive evidence for life elsewhere in the universe, the only evidence, the only hard tangible evidence we have for life is life on planet Earth. And the evidence suggests that once life emerged on planet Earth, it underwent a series of changes and approximately 900 billion life forms have existed since the emergence of life on this planet, the vast majority of which have gone extinct. Over 99% of all of the life forms, plant and animal life forms on planet Earth have gone extinct. So contemporary life forms represent the tip of the iceberg. And intelligent life, as we've defined it, has only emerged once. So the track record for intelligent life on this planet suggests that the likelihood of finding intelligent life elsewhere is extremely remote. And in thinking about the possibility of intelligent life elsewhere. It occurred to me and my, my current student that if intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe, why hasn't it found us? I mean, we've made extraordinary attempts 
to try to locate intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. We send out radio signals in an attempt to, uh, techno signals in an attempt to find out if there are any comparable signals being sent from life forms elsewhere in the universe. And, and none of these techno signatures has ever been shown to be a byproduct of intelligent life elsewhere. But if intelligent life exists elsewhere, let's return to the question, why hasn't it found us? And in this paper that we wrote on extraterrestrial intelligence, we speculate that although many people have surmised that if intelligent life existed elsewhere, intelligent life might come to planet Earth in an attempt to extract what on their planet were scarce resources, and they would pillage and and kill and 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 do all kinds of things to eliminate the competition that we pose so they could then um, capitalize on these resources. It turns out, however, that there have been five major extinctions on planet Earth one of which was the was the asteroid impact theory. And we and astrobiologists have concluded <clears throat> that we're on the cusp of the next major extinction, the sixth extinction. And the next major extinction, which may be right around the corner as far as time is concerned from an astrobiological point of view, the next extinction will be absolutely unique in that it'll be the first time in the history of life on this planet that Extinction occurred as a consequence of a single species. Humans are <clears throat> well known for killing each other and engaging in wars and uh, inventing uh, methods of mass destruction that can be delivered by intercontinental ballistic missiles and so on and so forth. And the war that's currently going on in Ukraine represents a propitious moment. And it's possible that intelligent life elsewhere in the universe has found us 
but at the same time, they've discovered that humans are very dangerous. Not only in terms of killing each other, but because of pollution and habitat destruction that's ultimately traceable to humans, we pose a serious risk to intelligent life elsewhere. And having discovered that, intelligent life elsewhere may have decided that we pose too great a risk and therefore have not revealed themselves. And that, although it might seem like a counterintuitive conclusion, is plausible, at least. Do you think that humans are capable of evolving beyond war with each other? That's a really interesting question. Over 99% of all the animals, all the creatures, all the life forms that have ever existed have gone extinct. Therefore, your best bet for any species is eventual extinction. It's over 99.9% any species at any point in time will eventually go extinct. So extinction is, in that sense, is, is inevitable. And the question then becomes one of, if you were to start evolution over, this is kind of like uh, back to the future, would you be able to go back in time and recapture humans? Evolution doesn't occur by design, it occurs by selection, and the, and the raw material for that selection are nothing but random genetic accidents. So if you were to go back in time and try to re-engineer humans, every species, let me just interject another point here before I finish this thought, you can think of different species as complex configurations of genetic accidents that have occurred as a result of natural selection. And the probability of getting the same configuration of genetic accidents the next time around is so remote as to make it almost impossible to get any particular species back. Life would evolve, but because life is based on nothing but genetic accidents, it would evolve and it would adapt to certain things, but any particular life form would be unique. And given the track record of life on planet Earth, it, intelligence has only emerged once, so the likelihood of getting it back is pretty remote. If there was an alien race that was far beyond us in technology and in consciousness, 
have you ever considered what our consciousness could evolve into or what their consciousness would be capable of? It's a really great, really great question. There's no reason to think, there's no reason to believe that if intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe, no reason whatsoever to believe that it thinks like us, which raises the question of whether there's a a universal logic language enables creatures to transcend time and space with language you can represent things in their absence you can represent represent things that happened in the past things that are happening now and things that haven't happened yet and you can even represent things that may never happen you can think about things that may never happen and let you can use language to not only transcend time, you can use language to transcend space. You can use language to represent things that are happening in Arizona or happening in China or wherever. So you no longer, for animals, when it's out of space, it's when it's out of sight, it's out of space. When it's out of sight, it's out of mind. For humans, it's just the opposite because we can represent things in their absence. And would aliens be capable of representing things in a way that would allow us to bridge that communication gap? I don't know. But you would think if they're, if they're truly intelligent that they ought to be capable of symbolic communication that's what symbolic communication is all about but whether you could crack that code is, is another question do you think it's possible that aliens are so far advanced that they are like us when we walk on the sidewalk and pay no attention to the ants on the ground they blow by us in their spaceships and pay no attention to us that's entirely possible. I mean, there may be life elsewhere in the universe that's so intelligent that it would be like asking God to build a rock that's so big that he can't lift it. They're so intelligent that we'd never be able to comprehend their intelligence. I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan or not, but if you are, I wonder if I you... Do you remember the old original series where there was some kind of silicon-based life form and they finally helped it and Spock mind-melded with it? And when he did, they thought it was just a blob. But after Spock mind-melded with it, he said, compared to it, we're just an amoeba. Exactly. Yep. I mean, I'm not sure that's a high probability, but... it. It's it's conceivable. I don't think it's I don't even think it's plausible, but it's conceivable. Uh, I read that there's an estimated 70 quintillion planets in the universe. And cosmologically speaking, there's got to be planets that are a lot older than us, maybe even by billions of years, where only a race that's a million years which is a drop in the bucket, cosmologically right. speaking, 
would be far beyond us in technology, if not even well, evolution. Let's, let's, think about, let's think about that. Let, let's think about that in another way. <clears throat> oh, it's a very interesting idea. But to put that in perspective, there are many people who think, including astrobiologists, by the way, that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And let me temper, I mean, and many people buy into that, that just because there's no evidence doesn't mean something doesn't exist. So the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And let's let's temper that logic a little bit with the idea of ghosts, ESP, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy. Obviously, <clears throat> at least I think it's obvious, the Tooth Fairy doesn't exist, neither does Santa Claus. <laughs> and, frankly, neither does ESP, for that matter. But, It turns out that this proposition at the absence of evidence is evidence isn't evidence of absence can become an empirical question. And let's take the Loch Ness monster as a case in point. A lot of effort has been spent trying to confirm the existence of a prehistoric creature in a large body of water in Scotland called Loch Ness. And, and the evidence, the ge geological evidence, suggests that this large body of water used to be connected to the ocean. But there were some geological, ge geological changes that cut off Loch Ness from the ocean and captured in Loch Ness were some prehistoric creatures, prehistoric monsters, the Loch Ness Monster. Although possible, it's not plausible. And the reason it's not plausible is because there would have to be a breeding population of Loch Ness monsters in Loch Ness. So it's not a question of whether the Loch Ness monster exists. There would have to be a breeding population of Loch Ness monsters. And a tremendous amount of, of time and effort has been spent trying to confirm the existence of the Loch Ness monster. And they have stations all over Loch Ness, where people come and, and with cameras and so on and so forth, and the hopes of being able to capture uh, a Loch Ness monster coming above the surface of the of Loch Ness. So does is the so the absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Well, on the contrary, all you have to do, and this is this and this is, is and this is certainly a possibility. In, in, it's in the realm of plausibility, would be to construct, to construct some pumping stations around Loch Ness, pump out all the water. Yeah. And the question is, would there be any Loch Ness monsters flopping around in the mud on the bottom? If there aren't, guess what? The absence of evidence 
is evidence of absence, right? <laughs> and the same thing can the same thing would apply to these attempts to try to connect, try to intercept radio signals from intelligent life forms elsewhere in the universe. I mean, try as we might, we've yet to be able to find anything that even faintly resembles what we think of as intelligence. So with each passing day... Well, wouldn't you think that radio signals are primitive signals in an advanced technological race? There are a lot of radio, radio-like radio signals um, that, that occur as a result of... Uh, of stars colliding and and blowing up and so on and so forth but none seem to fit any kind of of intelligent logical deep structure like human language does in terms of grammar let me ask you your opinion on this did you see last june where the navy released the video of some type of ship going from 50,000 feet in the air to about 10 feet in the air in one second, the Tic Tac anomalies. Yeah. What is your opinion on those? Well, it may very well be that some of these UFOs, well, I shouldn't say may very well be. It's possible that some of these UFOs represent intelligent life forms that 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 are attempting to develop a taxonomy of life elsewhere in the universe and again maybe they've discovered that we're dangerous and <laughs> you ought to leave well enough alone <laughs> is it possible that aliens could be communicating with them and we don't have the ability to recognize the communication exactly that's exactly right. That's like administering an intelligence test that was created by somebody who's more intelligent than you are. You, you'd make the wrong responses, but it's only because you're not sufficiently intelligent. And even like you were saying earlier, we may not even think the same way they do. Correct. There's no reason to there's no reason to believe that they think the same way we do. Mm. I mean it's possible, but it's I think it's very unlikely. I mean, given given what's happened to intelligent life on this planet, I mean there's no evidence, for example, despite a lot of fanciful thinking that purposes engage in symbolic communication. They they may communicate, but they don't communicate in ways that allows them to transcend time and space and represent things in their absence. You know, I asked earlier if we were capable of not being violent anymore. Have you seen any evidence, at least maybe in the last hundred years or so, that we've become less violent? That's a good question. I think increasingly humans 
compete among one, one another for scarce resources in the intellectual rather than the physical domain. So humans develop dominance hierarchies, which gives the people at the top of the hierarchy uh, preferential access to resources and money and so on and so forth. You can do that and you can, you can compete for dominance in the dominance hierarchy in the physical domain or in the psychological domain. And in the physical domain, it takes the form of nowadays of uh, sports. But you can also compete for dominance in the intellectual domain. And increasingly, that's the more frequent means by which humans compete for resources. Are you aware of acquired savant syndrome? Acquired what? Acquired savant syndrome. No. I know about the savant syndrome, but I'm not aware of the acquired. Well, the acquired part is when someone's in some type of injury and there's some kind of impact to their neurological system, they become some kind of savant. Usually it's in, you know, mathematics or music or something. Okay. I am familiar with that. Yes. Mm -hmm. What is your opinion on that? Getting these abilities that we've never had before where someone, you know, maybe gets hit in the head and now you drop a a bag of pencils on the ground and he knows he can look at it and tell you how many is there. Right, right. Is that possibility that we could evolve into those abilities also? Or is is that a possibility? It's certainly an intriguing thought. The other way to think about it is this. In order for you and I to communicate, we have to map certain features of our brain anatomy onto one another. And therefore, changes in human brain anatomy may make certain kinds of thinking that were heretofore impossible, possible. I mean, that would be like thinking outside the box, but thinking outside the neurological box, Uh so to speak. And it's certainly true in in terms of the history of science that major breakthroughs more often than not occur as a result of thinking outside the box, asking new and novel questions that lead to conclusions that couldn't have heretofore been anticipated. Are you aware of Dr. Eben Alexander, the Harvard neurosurgeon? I am. And he was in a coma for, I don't know, seven days or so. And according to him, his brain is completely shut down. There's no way he could have been thinking anything. And he had this conscious near-death experience. He was an atheist, and now he's you know completely changed his paradigm. If you're aware of all that, I wanted to know what your opinion of that is. I was not aware of that. That's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. There's a guy I spoke with, Dr. Bernardo Castrup, that believes that life itself, our physical life, is the result, the manifestation of consciousness. It's not the other way around where we, you know, consciousness is the end result of our biology, but like there's a universal consciousness 
and what we are as biological beings are an expression of consciousness in this realm. No, well, let I, me give you an analogy. I, I may be getting uh, way out there for, for academia, but that's kind of what we chit chat about here on this show. Some people think about intelligence and, and life and everything in the cosmos as being derived from a complex equation out there in the universe. And from that complex equation, you can deduce all of the questions that anybody could ever ask. And some people think that complex equation is analogous to quote unquote God. Evolution stems from Darwinism's theories or Darwin's theories, right? Right, right. But even Darwin himself said everything came from these simple life forms. But he never explained where these simple life forms came from that everything evolved from. Well, one way to answer that question would be that all contemporary life forms share one thing in common, and that's DNA. I mean, the fact that all life forms are based on DNA suggests that the prime mover in terms of the first life form. See, life... The distinction between between life and non-life is reproduction. Life consists of configurations of molecules that can now reproduce. But Darwin, it, it, it's reported that before Darwin died, it, although he became very eminently famous with lots and lots of attention, I mean, and he's probably. I would. I would. I would hazard the guess that the theory of evolution is the most significant intellectual achievement of all time. But before Darwin died, it's report. It's reported that he became depressed and despondent because it occurred to him that there was a basic paradox. How can a product of evolution ever completely comprehend evolution. I mean, in a sense, in order for anything to comprehend something else, it has to be more complex. So that's an interesting. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Dr. Gallup, I know I could talk to you for hours because I'm sure as you, we could. Yeah, I'm, I think we just scratched the surface. I, I agree because there were so many things that if, as we were talking, I could go on to questions and we would go down into deep rabbit holes. <laughs> and um, I'm already over time, but what I want to do is let people know about your paper if they want to read it for themselves. Where can they find it? All they have to do is Google extraterrestrial intelligence, a cognitive evolutionary perspective. And if they do that, that'll take them, that'll take them to a site that um, they can use. 
to download the paper. And it's freely available to anybody that wants to read it. Maybe I'll just put a link to it in the description of go. my video so they can find right. it. Right. There you go. Right. Well, I sent you a copy of that. That's true. Yes. So you ought to be able to give right. them the necessary information. Sure. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Knowing is preferable to not knowing whatever the truth might be. That's a great message. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Gallup, for joining us today. I really appreciate you being my guest, and I wish you a great rest of your weekend. Well, it's been my pleasure, Jeff. It was, it was, it was, it was very nice talking to you, and you're very perceptive and very intelligent, so it was very intriguing. Well, thank you. And you were a great guest. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.